Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. Earlier this week, the Writers Guild voted to authorize a strike, the first since 2007. The move comes after years of mounting tensions over how writers are treated by the big streamers, be it because of reduced episode orders, smaller staffs, or the loss of residuals. This move will significantly impact the comedy that does, or more accurately, does not get produced in the coming months and years, potentially. This week's episode will hopefully orient you a little bit on what's happening. Earlier this year, I was asked by USD Film School to moderate a panel about the state of modern TV making with past Good One guest Rachel Bloom, the co-creator and star of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and Gina Yashere, the co-creator and co-star of Bob Hart's Abishola, as well as Steve Levitan, the veteran TV writer best known for co-creating Modern Family and creating Reboot, uh, an acclaimed Hulu comedy that Bloom starred in and had recently been canceled at the time of the recording. The conversation covers much more than what is at hand with the current WGA negotiations, but in total, I, I hope it paints a picture of what it's like right now to try to create and make sitcoms. So here is Rachel Bloom, Steve Levitan, and Gina Yashere. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. This is on, yes. Uh, welcome to the Changing Flavor of Series Comedy uh, panel. We're going to talk for about an hour, then there'll be time for audience Q&A. Uh, so think about the questions, but mostly pay attention for the first hour. Um, so I feel like a really clear way of capturing how much series comedy has changed is how different each of your stories in is and how you got to create your first shows. Um, so I think starting... Well, Steve, can you talk about getting into the business and then how you got to Just Shoot Me? So, hi, everybody. Uh, I moved to L.A. in 1990. And um, uh, back then, you wrote a spec script for an existing show. That was really that nobody wanted to read your pilot. Uh, uh, you needed to show that you could, you could write a show uh, that was out there. So I wrote uh, a couple of spec scripts. I was took a job. I won't, I was doing other careers, took a job uh, out here to get me out here. And then the first room uh, that I got to pitch to was uh, for the TV show Wings. 
which was uh, where I met David Isaacs, who was uh, an amazing comedy writer, everybody. And, uh, uh, and, and I got to work with some real legends in the business, um, you know, Levine and Isaacs and uh, David Lloyd, um, which are just, you know, you know, legendary people, and Bob Ellison and, and uh, Casey Angel Lee, these people who went on to create Frasier. And I just learned. I just I learned from them. I could literally remember being in the room and like certain things would happen. I'd go, oh, oh, I, ju I just learned something. Like, for example, <laughs> if you had to put in a piece of exposition, but, you know, you had to lay something in because it was going to come back later. You know, somebody's afraid of spiders or something, right? If you just say, oh, you're afraid of spiders in the beginning, then everyone knows there's going to be spiders later. I'm, I'm making... Anyway... <laughs> Someone said, yeah, you, well, yeah, you just bury it in a joke. And I went, oh, my God, that's, <laughs> wow, look at that. I mean, I, like little things like that would happen all the time. So it was like, you know, it was my grad school uh, to go and, 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 and learn that. So I did that. I wrote some episodes of Frasier and some other weird things like The Critic. Mm -hmm. And then I... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it was... Wings was great. Well, yeah, every, they're all... <laughs> good shows. These are all good shows. And then I, then I went and left and did uh, a little stint on the Larry Sanders show. And then I went back to Fraser for a while. And then I created Just Shoot Me, which was the first original thing that I had ever written. Mm. Um, and I was terrified. And that's the whole thing. And did that for... That, that lasted for seven years. Uh, had a series of failures... Uh, you know, either things that didn't get on the air or a number of shows that went on the air for a year yeah. or so. Uh, and I uh, did those for, you know, many years. Get, was thinking I, I'm, I'm out of ideas, I'm, you know, all that. And I think it was like on my ninth or tenth try, um, we, uh, along with uh, Chris Lloyd, came up with Modern Family and did that. And then did that for 11 years. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, and then uh, that finally ended. Uh, sort of rode through the pandemic, and then we did our little stint on. Uh, we did that limited series reboot. <laughs> Furious. It was Rachel. like Fosse Verdon. <laughs> Rachel, how did you? Uh, what was your arc? Um, I. Uh, I I went to NYU. I majored in uh, major majoring in musical theater seems such a silly thing to say, but I guess I did. Um, and then experimental theater, which also seems ridiculous to say. Uh, but while I was there, I fell in love with sketch comedy on a sketch group. And so when I graduated, I knew I wanted to combine musical theater and comedy. I started doing stuff at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, and then I also. I put a video online that I thought would just be a fun comedy calling card along with my UCB stuff, and it was a music video called Fuck Me Ray Bradbury. And, um, <laughs> and it, and thank, thank, thank you. Um, I was 23 years old, and it went like viral. Every, anytime someone says, I, or said, I'm gonna make a viral video, there's no, you don't make a viral video, yeah. you make a video, and then the internet reacts how it does, but it went like super viral. And that got me representation. And in my back pocket, I had a speck of 30 Rock because at NYU, I took a TV writing class. Um, 
Uh, and that speck of 30 Rock got me hired for my first writing staff, um, which was, I was so happy to be on a staff. It was a miserable experience. I was, first of all, I was 23. I had, no, I, I was just barely out of college. I, you know, I had one music video online. I had one show at UCB. Um, I was the only girl uh, and everyone else in the room was much more experienced and also to no fault of the boss, uh, my ex-boyfriend was in the writer's room, um, which he couldn't have known. Um, and uh, uh, he and his writing partner and a couple of other guys were not kind in that room. It was a very mean room. So I went home every day crying um, and I felt in that room like I had been transported back in time to being 13 years old uh, every day of work and then I'd come back out of the time portal and I'd write stuff on my own and my stuff would be getting better because as mean as some of those guys were, they were like really good joke writers. Um, so then I, I, uh, I kept staffing on other things. I wrote on the show Robot Chicken. Um, I kept doing, thank you, uh, still on the air. Um, I kept doing musical comedy uh, stuff online, uh, stuff at UCB, and that got me noticed by this woman, Aline Brosh McKenna, who wrote The Devil Wears Prada, among many other things, and we had this kind of blind date where she said, I wanna create a musical television show with you. Let's, I've never done, I haven't done television in 20 years, she said, uh, let's do something, and she had had an idea for a movie called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and so we took that and we made a show, uh, and it was on for four seasons. I mean, we were the loaded, thank you. I believe our pedigree, most people think we're a Netflix show. We were actually on, we were on the CW and I think we were the lowest rated network show ever to get four seasons. It's, it's unbelievable that the show even happened. Um, truly. Um, and then there was a pandemic. <laughs> I had a baby. Um, thank you. Um, I see a lot of young faces. It's really hard. It's hard. It's hard, okay? Use a condom. Unless you're ready, unless you're ready, which none of you are. You're not ready. Um, uh, they're not ready. Uh, and then I was on Reboot, and, and I'm trying to sell other stuff, and we can talk about that and the struggle to sell other things and get Hollywood to give me permission once again to make something. Gina? Hello? All right. Uh, so I'm British-born, obviously. Um, of Nigerian immigrant parents. So how I got into comedy was I studied engineering. Uh, <laughs> so that's what I did for, you know, I was an electrical electronics engineer for a few years. Um, my last job was building elevators. Uh, and then fell into comedy. That's a long story. I fell into comedy. I fell into stand-up, stand-up comedy. I discovered that I was, you know, as a, child of immigrants at school you know I was either fighting or trying not to get into fights so I used my sense of humor to avoid conflict and discover that was funny didn't know you could make a living off of it but then I found out once I fell into comedy you could and stand-up became my love and that's what I was doing stand-up and then you know in England I got on to you know stand-up went to sketch I started doing sketch on tv and doing various character comic stuff on and writing on other people's sketch shows on tv and that's how I got into I never worked in writers rooms as such I'd send sketches in and then they'd use them and then they'd send me a check and that's how I got and then how I'd get on TV was if someone asked me to write something, I'd go, I can write something for you if I can write something for me too. <clears throat> and that's how I'd get in. I'd write stuff for them and then I'd write a character for myself and that's how I got myself on their shows. 
And then eventually I left England and came to LA because this is the land of dreams. <laughs> and I came here and was broke for seven years. Uh, <laughs> but I came here, but I, you know, I started building up my stand-up career here and went to New York, lived in New York for six years. And um, I never worked in any writer's room because I avoided that because I'm a stand-up comic. So people kept asking me to come and write in their rooms. And I was like, I've heard horror stories about the writer's rooms out here. I don't want that. And I'm a stand-up comic and now I'm used to getting up at midday. So I don't want a job. So I avoided it. Um, how this show came about was Chuck Lorre of Big Bang Theory, Two and a Half Men, that guy, uh, found me after he went on vacation to Africa. <laughs> I'm not even making this shit up. Uh, and, dis and was like, you know what? I want to make a show with African people. <laughs> I don't want to do another Mike and Molly with Billy Gardell, but I want to work with Billy Gardell again, but I want to do another show. But instead of a Molly, it, the woman will be a Nigerian woman, an African woman. And they were like, but we're three white guys. Him and his exec producers were like, we're three white guys. We can't make this. We need help. We need a Nigerian comedian. But where are Nigerian comedians? And do they even exist? And a Google search later. <laughs> Seriously not making this shit up. They Googled Nigerian female comedian. Uh, you know, I'd been out in America for years, struggling, putting my stuff out online and all my, all my stand-up specials. I used to make my own specials and sell them out the back of my car like a rapper selling mixtapes. Uh, <laughs> but all my stuff was online. So I came up in the Google search, they found a set of mine, and they were like, get that woman. And they flew in for a meeting, and we just got picked up for season five <laughs> of Bob Haas, Abby Shola. <laughs> you know, Gina, as, as you mentioned, you, you, you were in comedy for a while, and you had success as a stand-up before you had this this career as a, in scripted TV. How did you think of the sort of TV scripted business beforehand and how has your mindset changed now that you've been in it? I mean, as a comedian, you always want to be on a sitcom. Like, it's the comedian's dream. I've never dreamed of being in movies or anything like that. I've, my dream was to be the fat best friend on somebody's sitcom. Do you know what I mean? And so that was what I always wanted. And that was what I was aiming towards. I never wanted to produce one. I never wanted to write one. I just wanted to get cast in one or get someone to build a show around me. And then I just turn up and act. And it wasn't. And then I got here and I realized you had to be a lot more entrepreneurial to get your stuff out there. So then I started writing stuff and then trying to pitch shows. And then it just wasn't. I was getting doors shut in my face. You know, uh, diversity is a new thing. <laughs> Right now, it's a new thing. So I was getting doors shut in my face left, right, and center. I was pitching shows and going for meetings, and it just wasn't really happening. So I didn't have a great view mm. of, of scripted TV. I mean, I wa love watching it, but I just didn't feel like there was, you know, much market for what I was doing. It, it felt like there wasn't uh, anybody trying to tell my story or stories similar to mine. You know, whenever I saw black people or African people specifically on TV, we were really hungry or poor or criminals or down. And I'm like, There's, we have cars and shit. Like, what are you talking about? 
So it was nice, you know, I, I wanted to tell those stories and those, th there was a time when they, people were not ready for those stories. So it was a struggle and that, so I didn't have a great, that's why I concentrated on my live stuff because then I could tell my stories in my own way to people who wanted to come and hear those stories yeah. and not be diluted through the lens of whoever was providing the money and the opportunity, you know? Yeah. Um, before we talk about how it changed, I want to ask Steve, as a person who's been in the industry for over 30 years, uh, you know, going through many phases of changes, you know, in what ways has it stayed the same? At the end of the day, the job of, of crafting good stories, building compelling characters and dynamics, that's always going to stay the same. Comedy is like music and fashion. It changes right through the years. And so what was what we did back, you know, then and, and on Wings is, is not going to fly the same, you know, way. It's not going to it's not going to ring true. Uh, so all that changes, the, the form changes, but, but the work, the job itself is surprisingly similar. You know, you're sitting down, you're breaking stories, you're trying to come up with compelling dynamics. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, love is love. Um, that doesn't change, you know, uh, uh, a, a tricky brother sister relationship, a tricky, uh, love relationship. The, the form of that is the same. Now the specifics will, will change and, and the, the tone of it, the style that you're going to tell the story, but, but you know, fundamental storytelling, it it's still you know still the same. You're going to take people on a journey, and so um, that's the, you know, that's the big thing. That's the surprising thing that no matter how you dress it up, no matter how you watch it, whether you're you know watching it on your TV or on your phone or on your shoe, you're still doing the same yeah the same job. So. I believe it's been 10 years since you first started developing Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Rachel. I believe it was in May 2013. That's what, it, at least that's what the yes. word is. Yes. Aline and I met in May 2013, yeah. So even in, in that 10 years, do you feel like you've seen significant changes in how comedy, what comedy television is, looks like? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it so, so much has changed, um, both, you know, with streaming. I think when we pitched Crazy ex girlfriend we were originally with Showtime they passed and I remember we went to a bunch of places and the overlap with the places that we're buying then and buying now they're I mean MTV doesn't buy anymore uh IFC isn't even I, I've never been told to pitch to IFC I don't know what AMC is doing like so it, it a lot of stuff has changed and then also culturally um the idea of I think uh whatever you call it empathy i think it's 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 empathy like it goes back to the first writing staff i was on actually which is over 10 years ago but the idea then of comedy was like how offensive can you be it was almost like a, being an offensive contest especially like in this first room i was in and now that's just we're a lot more empathetic and i mean you were talking about doors getting slammed in your face speaking second third hand i didn't realize how bad it was for people who were non-white until we were casting crazy ex-girlfriend and so the first thing is we wrote the love interest to be Asian American. It was all, he was an Asian American bro from Southern California. I'm from Southern California. I modeled it after people. And someone said, I just, does he have to be Asian? And we said, yeah. <laughs> and they were, and they're just like, well, because those actors, they're very green. They don't have a lot of experience. And it's like, yeah, they don't have a lot of experience because you're not giving them experience. And my friend, who's an Indian stand-up comic, I said, we're going to cast this role. She goes, do not go to the big three agencies. You're gonna have to go to really small agencies because the big three agencies do not rep people of color. I was so surprised. And like, I remember um, 
we we were meeting with a, a, a casting director who didn't end up being our casting director, and we were talking about another role, this role of Greg. And I said, well, I I, I don't know. He could be many things. I he could also be black. And she's like, oh, I didn't bring my packet for that. So she had. <laughs> So this is what she had. She had the leading men in Hollywood in one packet, all of whom were white, and then she had a diverse packet. Jesus but she didn't Christ. bring her diverse packet. And I was like, whoa. And I, I just, you know, I didn't have that experience. It, it, blew, it blew my mind even trying to cast a show. And now it, it would be the opposite. People would be thrilled that the romantic lead was Asian American. They'd be thrilled. And so just experiencing that as someone trying to cast a show in ways that I hadn't realized because I'm, you know, white. Well, our Jews white or white passing. We can get into that later. But um, uh, that's a whole other thing. Let's not talk about it. Um, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I, like that alone, that was 2014. That blew, it, blew, it blew my mind. I had no idea. And stuff hasn't changed that much. It got better. You know, things, every once in a while, it's cyclical. Every once in a while they go, oh, we, we need more diversity. And then they just hire a bunch of diverse people. But then as soon as that trend disappears, they fire all those people. And so that's why we get, we get an issue with having black writers in Hollywood because they, they, get, they get brought in on the diversity initiative, but then they never get kept on. They don't get kept on. After it's finished, they're like, all right, and they throw away. And that's what keeps happening over and over again. So when we, I was trying to get writers for our show, they kept, I kept hitting that wall where they were like, oh, you know, there aren't any experienced black writers. I'm like, they're not experienced because when they get in the door, they don't get to stay in the door. You get them in and then you throw them away as soon as you're finished. And so what I was doing was I, I kind of tricked black writers into the room in that I'd invite, I'd do my stand-up shows and then I'd invite Chuck and the guys to my shows and then get all my black friend comedians and put them on the show. And then after the show, they go, oh, we like that woman. I go, really? Because she writes. <laughs> and that's how I got them in the room. And so, <laughs> and now those people, and now, you know, they've been able to gain that experience because the show has run for four seasons now when we're getting another season. So they get to sit in the room and stay in the room and learn. I've learned, as, and, and, that, and I'm hoping, you know, because to get a show on air, I needed a rich white man to anoint me <laughs> and I'm hoping to turn around and be that rich white man for other people <laughs> and so that's what I'm trying to do <laughs> I mean and speak to that point on the viewer side how do you think that has changed the comedy that's being made the, the, the fact that though it has not changed that much but has some people been able to give people opportunities so the makeup of writers room has shifted especially at least where it was when I met Steve you started how is that how do you think that has change the, the nature of the stories that are being told or the comedy that's being made? Anyone? I, I feel like there's a, I just, in general, there's a lot less othering. That's the only way that, as, and I am saying this more as a viewer, that when you have everything written by straight white men, and I love straight white men. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm married to a straight white man, uh, you know, Steve, you're great. Um, but but when you have everything written by just one type of person and then but there are other characters there's another ring i think that happens and like i when i read a when i read a script and there actually it's not much the case anymore but when i used to read scripts for auditions and there was a female character i could tell within a couple lines if the script was written by a guy cuz there would be certain um tells 
of, oh, this was written a little bit from the out, this was written from the outside in. And sometimes I wouldn't be able to tell. But that's, that's as a viewer, I think they're, I think characters are now being approached much more from the inside out in general. We'll be right back with Rachel Bloom, Steve Levitan, and Gina Yashray. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Now back to my conversation with Rachel Bloom, Steve Levitan, and Gina Yashray. Rachel, as you mentioned, streaming is a big force in terms of what uh, what has changed in terms of both in terms of what gets made, how what we see. So, 2023 marks 10 years since House of Cards and Orange Is the New Black um, premiered on Netflix. So, this has had a, a great impact on both the business and the creative. So, I want to focus a little bit on the business. You know, what is the impact of streaming on the business of creating and selling shows? If you want to start, Steve. Oh, that's a, that's a very big question. Um, it's had, a, it's had, there's so many, there, I mean, there's so many effects that it's it's kind of hard to to um, sum up. Um, I mean, it's opened a lot of doors because there are, there were suddenly, you know, there's this tidal wave of, of new shows and, and people can suddenly get very, very specific. Um, uh, and 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 that was the biggest the biggest change. And everybody was looking for you know no it could be as weird and it can so, you know it used, in the old days it was look it's broadcast broadcast means cast broadly. <laughs> How many people can you pick up? No, your idea is too specific or it's too niche. Uh, people won't go for that. You know like oh oh a show with gay people will be too off putting to too many people. So you know. And then, that, fortunately, things like that changed. But streaming became very much like the 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 nichier is that a word? Yeah. The the better. Uh, uh, the more the more specific, the weirder, the louder, the you know, um, the more personal, the better. That was all all very very good. Um, it did. It, you know, I, 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 an interesting quick little interesting side note. Uh, many, many years ago, I was invited to 10 Downing Street, uh, which is the uh, you know, center of government in, in the UK. And, and David Cameron at the time was the prime minister. And, and, and he had, um, uh, yeah. And, and he, but the, the, the purpose of it was to have 
uh, a, a handful. Oh, I should have left, turned this phone off. So sorry. Um, a, a, a handful of um, uh, American producers, uh, four of us or something, and then and some British producers. And the point of it was, why is it that in the UK we do all these amazing shows, uh, The Office being the the best example of it, that we do six or eight episodes a season, we do a few seasons of them, and then they go to the US where they are made and they make billions of dollars in the US because they suddenly do 22 or more episodes a year. Why is that? And, um, and there was a whole thing. I remember Julian Fellows was one of the people and he said, I'm not sure the question is why, uh, why don't we, uh, you know, do that? But why should we do? You know, like it was very, very, very British. And um, no, no offense. And uh, but it occurred to me recently that we have, in fact, become them. Yeah. We we they didn't become us, uh, and suddenly start doing more shows. We started doing six, eight episodes a season, and that's a gigantic change. For so many reasons, but are there any other differences that y'all have noticed, Gina or Rachel? I mean, I think when Netflix came out, it kind of changed the game and opened the industry up to more diverse stories, different stories, because there were so many more avenues. Because you know, before it was just those few networks that were the gatekeepers for everything, and then the internet has changed the game in that people just can bypass the gatekeepers and just put their content out there, which is kind of what I started doing, just making my own specials and just putting them out there. Just like, you don't, what Netflix show time? You don't want to buy my special? Well, fuck it then. I'm going to make my own and just put it out there and just sell it to direct to the people. So I think they kind of came on the back of that whole thing of just everybody just making their own content and it's opened it up in a way. But then that way, because of that, they're not regulated so they can pay people whatever they want. And so, <laughs> which doesn't, helps and doesn't help they have a certain few people that make all the money and then people who are creating their shows these streamers are not beholden to the same rules that the networks are so they can go we're going to give you this much money for your show and not a penny more and we don't even have to tell you how many people watch the show or and so you you might not get residuals and all that kind of stuff that you got in the old days where you could your show can carry on making money for you for the rest of your life those kind of things seem to be sort of slipping here, away here. So basically, yeah. I came into the industry just 10 years too late, and I'm pissed. But, <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, in a way, it opened up doors for creators. But then in a way, you know, I feel like they need to be reined in. There needs to be a way where people make sure they get paid for their work yeah. properly. The, the downside of that, it, I will say, it... it, it, it it presents uh, an enormous number. I mean, there are just incredible opportunities out there to tell your story. The downside of it is there's so much product that it's, it's impossible to, or it's getting harder, harder, harder to break through. There are amazing shows out there that you haven't heard of, <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> um, and and it, it's, it's impossible. It becomes, uh, who, who, how many people here feel angst because you have that list of shows that you've heard about, you know, <laughs> that you haven't gotten to yet? Like, it's, it's exhausting. And so, so, so good product is not being seen in the way that it was back in the day. Um, good, good, bad, whatever. Um, and the talent pool 
is spread thinner than ever. So it is harder, you know, to put together a very, you know, um, it's harder to get a, a writing staff that is experienced. So the job is a little bit, can be, you can be working with people who aren't as experienced. Usually you like to have a staff that's both. It's very experienced, and then it kind of, as you, you know, it, it works down, and there are people who are new, and you and then those people rise through the ranks, and then they become the experienced ones, et cetera, et cetera. And it becomes harder to get good people because now people are scrambling for jobs on six different shows, trying to put together a year. And in the old days, you can put together 22 episodes, and, you know, if you were on a show that would run for a few years, you were really good, and it was a good living. And there is a, a, a new class of writers who are trying to get episodes anywhere, but maybe they'll get eight episodes this year. And that's not the same as, uh, you know, as it was. So the people who broke through in the past were the lucky ones, but there were a lot of people who were left out. Now more people are being let in, but the, what's there <laughs> is not quite yeah. as uh, rosy as it once was. I mean, also Steve's articulating everyone's articulating the issues going on with the Writers Guild right now. And I don't know how many of you, I don't know how many of you are in USC or students here, but um, I, I would never in normally say read Hollywood Reporter or check Deadline. I would never say that. That doesn't sound like me. But um, what's going on right now with uh, what just, if you don't know, there there is the, the potential for a Writers Guild strike coming up in a couple months, which has not happened since um, 2007, 2008, when I was in college, and I kind of didn't know what was going on, and I and I wish I had because uh, the strike was over uh, basically new media on the internet, and that strike is the reason that uh, th that extends to streaming. The inter internet now is basically all of the TV we watch. So anyway, um, all of these issues about you're not getting paid enough you're working on eight eight episodes here six episodes there you're not getting the set experience these are all like very also practical issues for earning a living right now that is quite interesting and scary um so in the finale of reboot um which was the by the way it, reboot has been canceled just so everyone here knows that it has been canceled it is not i don't i mean Steve can speak to it um but curious. i don't think it's coming back um, but in the finale, there's a joke about the potential of the show within the show being canceled for sort of algorithmic reasons. Um, <laughs> you've you've had shows last a season before. I mean, does what's your thinking about the situation? <laughs> yeah. So, how do you? What is your interpre interpretation of what happened? And 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 what does it say about the nature of the um, climate? Take your time. Um, <laughs> I will try to. I don't, I'll. Okay, here's what I think happened. It was a sort of a collision of events. Um, there is, again, as I mentioned, an enormous amount of, of product out there. Um, our show was not inexpensive, uh, just by the very nature of Rachel. Um, <laughs> No, wait, no, but you know, our, uh, it, it wasn't inexpensive. There are some shows that have like a cast of of people who are you know new and and they're getting paid a lot less than our cast was. Kind of this crazy all star 
cast. It was uh, insane. I would like to hear the numbers of what everyone was paid. I'm just just purely for them, not for me, for them. But you know, I I think that uh, I, I don't I, I don't like to be a complainer about it. I've been so lucky in this business, so I don't want to be. I but I can kind of look at it from the outside and say, oh, also by the way, the fact that we are now at a time when the stock market has pulled back, suddenly companies like Disney are laying off gigantic portions of their workforce. Um, it and and all the streamers are they do seem to be finally realizing there's too much product. So it's not the best time to be that show that has a lot of potential. Uh, it's a time to where you just say like, okay, cut, it's not working for us today. Cut, 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 cut. I think that kind of is what happened. I was, I remain very proud of the show and um, I thought it accomplished what exactly what uh, I wanted it to do other than succeed. Um, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Uh, but, but that's what I think. Rachel, what do you think? Yeah, so I also had a pilot with Hulu that Aline and I created. Uh, it was our second show after Crazy Ex-Girlfriend called Badass and Her Sister. It's an action comedy in which I play twins um, because uh, I guess I don't want to see my child. I, I guess that's, uh, I want to play twins. I want to be to get paid twice. It, uh, <laughs> smart, smart. Uh, <laughs> I'm difficult. Uh, uh, Hulu, about a month and a half before they canceled Reboot, passed on our pilot. And that's breaking news. Do, 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 you know, uh, no one knows. Uh, it's not that big a deal. But uh, they passed on our pilot, and, and I said to one of the executives, like, what, what, what's the deal? Did we not deliver? Because they were so excited about our pitch. And uh, and they and executive was like you, this poor guy, because he's so beleaguered because I'm bothering him about reboot, but also this pilot. And he's like, we don't have money, right? Like we don't have as much money. And basically, he's like, we liked your show. There are just some others we like better, <laughs> and and we had to pick and choose right now. So there is definitely a there. I just there seems to be a crunch specifically over at Hulu happening. You know, with Bob Iger back, I know that there are talks about Disney selling Hulu. Uh, so the idea, I'm sure it's very scary to be a Hulu executive right now. Um, it's just a really turbulent, weird time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, as somebody who's been in this business for a long time, it's never been. The change, I mean, it's the changes are happening at such a dramatic, in such a dramatic fashion at such a ridiculous pace. It's It's hard to imagine. Like you literally... You know, because I was trying to, I'm developing multiple shows, and I'm trying to develop, I have a deal at Disney, and so I'm trying to develop for, so looking for shows for Hulu, for Disney+, Plus, for uh, FX, for, you know, all these different, ABC, whatever it is. Um, and you would ask, okay, what, what's, what are they looking for? <laughs> and either nobody really knew what that streamer was looking for or that thing, what was that brand of that one, or we, we're figuring it out. Stand by, we're figuring it out. And, and that's not like putting anybody down because I, why don't these idiots know? No, it's because it's changing so fast. I mean, the idea of managing, you know, our job is hard, but the idea of managing, managing, that crazy mess of trying to monetize something that is 
losing money at ridiculous rates right now and and trying to develop, you know, uh, carve out your audience and develop shows that are the you know right shows for these things and it, it it's it it's mind-boggling what's going on and, and they're all losing money there's no nobody's making money on these things right now so um it's tricky. yeah gina i want to ask so you, you know you you make bob hart's abishola ostensibly for cbs and it so it airs on cbs and then it airs on paramount plus and then when the season ends it then goes on hbo max as well um that's that's a variety of audiences do you do you, are you able to conceive of these are different people that are going to be seeing in a different way? How do you, does it affect you in any way? I've no idea what's fucking going on with this show. Um, I don't understand how it all works. I mean, this is all... It was made for CBS. We made it for CBS. But then, obviously, we're a Warner Brothers show. So Warner Brothers owns HBO, HBO Max, all of that. I mean, it's, it just seems like a bunch of corporations who keep merging and unmerging and buying other... Companies. So I don't understand it all. But for me... CBS is not traditionally been a channel that attracts the young. <laughs> Period. <laughs> or the non-white, to be fair. Uh, so it's fantastic. That I think it's fantastic for us that the show gets to be on HBO Max because that's a, a much more interested audience. Uh, and I'm hoping that we pick up, because I think it's a really great show. I know it's on CBS and none of you are going to watch it, but it's the first three seasons and now on HBO Max, which I'm sure a lot of you have. Do you? I don't even know. Um, so I think it's a really good show, but not, you know, because it's on CBS, it's a certain, there's a certain, not a stigma attached to it, but there is a thing where they go, oh, it's, the CBS is on white people's station, so young people aren't going to watch this show. So what I do like about the fact that they have all these extra channels for streaming is that maybe we'll pick up an audience of people that will go, oh, this is actually a really good show that I would never have considered watching before because it's on this old people channel. And now it's on HBO Max. I might actually give it a chance. So for me, that's a great thing. I don't know if I get any more money out of it. I don't know. I don't really care. I just want more people to see the show for me. It's just about people seeing the show and enjoying it and hopefully getting some longevity out of it because we're telling stories that nobody's going to see. You're not going to... The stories that you see on our show, you are not going to see on any other sitcom right now. You know, we are the first network TV sitcom which with a Nigerian and African immigrant family and I just feel like we're telling stories that has never been seen before but from a from a really good perspective, a perspective of real people, human people, three-dimensional characters who love, who hate, who laugh, who scream the same way as everybody else does, but just with different accents <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and coming from a different perspective. So you're seeing things you've never seen. Like we did a Nigerian wedding, and if you've ever seen a Nigerian wedding, it will put a Kardashian wedding to shame. <laughs> like the costumes, the music, the colors, you're not going to see that. You're not going to see that on Will and Grace. You're not going to see that. You know, so I think we're, we're doing fantastic things. And I'm just, yeah, I'm, for that, I'm happy to have our stuff going out on the streaming platforms just so more people get to see it and we'll get a bigger audience, hopefully. And not get cancelled, hopefully. Rachel, did you have to think about when you were writing songs for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend that would also live on YouTube completely removed from the context of the show? Yeah, we did. And... And remain surprised that none of them really broke out in, in a way that, like, put the show... Some of them broke out, but we really thought 
there were certain songs where like, this is going to be huge. And they would be fine. I would say TikTok, which became a thing after the show ended, has done more for our songs than putting them on YouTube did because we were in a transitional phase. I think of how people consume comedy and can consume comedy online. Um, so we always thought the songs would, you know, go viral. But again, like, and they, and some of them kind of did, but not in the way that it, the average SNL music video did. We we could never match their numbers. And part of that reason is because um, SNL is topical. So you're going to have stuff that goes viral because it's partially because it's like to the week. What is happening that week? What is the topic that week? If you're making a TV show, and this is this is for sketch comedy too. If if you're making a sketch show like I think you should leave or or or, or Key and Peele or musical sketches like on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, there's a lead time. You can't make stuff that's that topical. And with the with the um, kind of competition between content, especially because of TikTok now, uh, it's harder to get. It's just harder to get noticed unless your thing is of that moment but you know like if we were still running uh, a crazy ex-girlfriend and we did like an Angela Bassett did the thing joke like uh, that wouldn't go on for another six months and then it would be six months people would be like oh I think I remember okay yeah sure no one would care you know one of the impacts of sort of streaming while you know still linear tv is on is the run times of shows right so Bob Hart Sabashola runs around 19 minutes like a good episode does. About 20, 23. Oh, 20 on, 23. At least on, at least on Hulu it says 19, unless they cut out stuff. Oh. On, on HBO yeah. Mac, they're 19. We usually aim for tw 22, yeah. 23. But like Crazy X was 42, and then yeah, reboot ranged from 25 to 33. Yeah, that was the biggest change for me was, like, yeah, you could, hey, we got to say fuck, but, um, which is fun. Um, but you do a Modern Family episode where we were telling sometimes three and four stories. Those were the run times for us were twenty one thirty, and a half. And you're, so you're that's that's how much you're watching eight and a half minutes of commercials and credits and all that kind of stuff. And and so suddenly we had the luxury of time. Okay, this moment needs to breathe. Let's let it play na more naturally. I mean, it, you can't, can't tell you how I'm sure you guys did this all the time. You you shoot a show, it inevitably runs long. Now you got to cut five five minutes out of a show. Mm -hmm. You got to cut twenty five percent of the show out, um, and so what you end up doing is taking out all the uh, things that are just not absolutely necessary to the plot. You end up losing sometimes really good jokes. You lose the subtlety in a moment. A, you know, an actor takes in a moment and and just digests something for just a, a second, or a director brings a character in in a way that's visually interesting and those are the first things <laughs> you know you know we you know when we would see a modern family like a director would go like yeah we're gonna do the shot that comes in and we're going that will be such a beautiful shot for us to cut <laughs> and um because we just knew you know we knew what was what what was going on uh so that was the biggest change and i love and, and it's it's the greatest part about that 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 a show can be what it needs to be no excuse to be indulgent. Yeah. Um, and suddenly you love everything you do, and uh, the thing drags. But um, you know, if you can, if you're disciplined about it, it's it's the best thing about streaming, cable, all that stuff. Yeah. Rachel, with the extra time, what do you think that gave the show, your show, Crazy X? Um. Well, it's interesting. We were a half hour cable 
cable cable with Showtime. And so when we went to the CW, we were in our network, which is 42 minutes. Really what that meant was the show was almost like a, a 30, 35 minute network show with songs. Gotcha. Um, what it did for us was we had B stories and C stories. In the original way we devised the show, we were gonna be eight to 10 episodes on Showtime and it was just gonna be the A story the whole time. And you weren't gonna go into B or C stories. And so uh, it, it, it would have been a different show actually be, because of that. The other characters wouldn't have been featured half as much. Gina, mm. do, do you like the short time? Do you wish you had more time on your episodes? Uh, yeah, sometimes I do uh, because we got our cast is we got quite a big cast. Yeah, and we'd like to do more with and we you know we usually do an A and a B story. We tend we tend not to go to a C. Usually A or B, and sometimes you want to go longer and you want to delve deeper. You know, there was an episode that we did recently where uh, one of our Nigerian characters, uh, her sister died. Uh, in Toronto and she wanted to go to the funeral but she couldn't because she's here on an American family visa and she's not allowed to leave America. Now I wanted to delve deeper into that visa story because a lot of people don't know that of how we get to the country and how difficult it is to travel in and out and we couldn't delve any deep because we haven't got long enough and so I had to we had to cut that visa story and she just mentions it and goes you can't go and then she sends Abishola and then that becomes a whole story of Abishola going in in her stead which was a really good story but I kind of wanted to go deeper into that story because I kind of want to tell the stories but also while we're making you laugh tell you some things that you might not have known before especially from an immigrant perspective that most people don't know about and the difficulties that we have that we, we don't just come here on boats and planes and just stay <laughs> like there are so many hoops we have to jump through and paperwork we have to do so I wanted to delve deeper into that so a longer time you know just an extra three four minutes would have been nice to be able to tell that story a bit and flesh it out a little bit you know you know, uh, partly because of streaming, one the the sort of other big trend in comedy over the last few years is a sort of shows that deprioritize jokes specifically, the amount of funniness that is happening, but they are still thirty minute shows developed by the comedy departments of these <laughs> networks. Um, so these are slots that hypothetically could be going for shows that have mm -hmm. harder jokes. This is partly what reboot is about. Um, so what do you all make of it? Steve, your smile's the biggest, so you go first. <laughs> well, I don't know how to how to how we need to handle it because I don't. I have nothing against. There are some amazing shows that are half-hour shows that are really, really good and compelling, but there's not a laugh in them, and they're not even going for a laugh. Yeah. So I don't even think I'm being insulting. They're not trying to get a laugh, but then it's competing in a best comedy category. Uh, not that awards are the end all or ultimately that meaningful, um, although they could save a show at a certain moment. But, um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I, do we need to start saying best half hour show? Do we need to have add additional categories? I mean, to me, um, if you're going to call something best comedy, if there's in, in a, an awards perspective, it should make people laugh. The goal of the show to, it should be to make you laugh. I believe, uh, you know, there was a speech in one of our episodes that Paul Reiser gave about, you know, there's nothing like it's it's what 
it's God's work basically to, you know, bring some joy to people's lives and make them laugh, not, oh, I made them anxious this week, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, well done. You know, there are, you know, it's important that, that people laugh and I've always felt that I love that. I love to hear the stories about people going through rough times in their lives and what say modern family meant to them, you know, going through that. And, and, um, I don't think it's, it's quite, uh, right to call something a comedy when it's a half hour drama. Yeah. So I don't know how we fix it, but I don't think it's the right thing to do mm-hmm. because it's harder. You know what? It's easy. It's, if I'm going for a very compelling drama, right? I, I'm existing on the dramatic level. Uh, it, it, that, that's fine. That's good. It's hard to do it. Well, is really, really hard. But if you're trying to do a compelling comedy, you're doing, you're, you're, you have to exist on the dramatic level. And then you, at the long side of it, you have to also exist on this other level that doesn't diminish the drama of it, and the drama doesn't diminish the comedy of it, and it's hard. It's very hard to do that. Well, you're, it's a tightrope, because you know when you, you get up on stage and you make a dramatic speech, people, you sit down and people applaud, and that was very lovely, and that was a great speech, whatever. But you go up there and you're doing you know, stand up, you're like, look at me, I'm funny. And if people aren't laughing, you're exposed in a way that is so wildly, <laughs> I, I, I just think you're, you're way more exposed. Do you, do you guys agree? Oh yeah, I mean, I'm a, st- <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a stand-up, so I'm a comedy purist. Like, if I'm getting up on stage, uh, my, first jo- my first job as a comedian is to comed. Like... <laughs> Like, if I'm not making you laugh, then I'm doing a TED talk. <laughs> and that's how it is for comedy. It's a comedy show, you're supposed to laugh. You're, it's most of, yeah? We, our show is also educating people, but my thing is, that's what my comedy is. I kind of, I'm feeding you medicine, but it's coated in sugar. Right, so you're learning something, you're taking something that's good for you, but you're laughing while you're doing it and absorbing the stuff without even realizing you're, you're, you're absorbing it. But it's fun. You've got to laugh. It's supposed to be entertaining. That's what comedy is. So yeah, those things, those shows to me are like, that's, it's a great show, but it's a drama. And why is it competing against? And, th- and that's how I feel like there's a lot of snobbery right now. It, it, to me, there's a lot of snobbery in the industry, especially against multicams, because our show's a multicam. And there's, you know, there was a time when multicams were huge. You had cheers, you, had, you know, it was a massive thing. And then it kind of went single camera, which is great. I love a good single single cam. But then there's become this snobbery where, oh, well, multicam, that's not real. And so you get overlooked for a lot of things, especially award time. Like, I'm sitting watching award time. And going, These shows are good, but our show is just as well written as that. But we're getting overlooked because we're not considered part of the you know whatever the zeitgeist is at the moment whatever it is and so and a lot of these a lot of shows get a lot of hype because of their companies are willing to spend more on publicity it's not necessarily how good the show is is how much hype they're getting because how much people are willing to spend on that and I feel like we've lost a lot of the essence of people actually watching a show because it's really good or the word of mouth of it it's not so much word of mouth now it's a lot of hype it's a lot of and you have to because there's so much product out there that if you want your show to stand out, you might have to spend a lot of money buying billboards on Sunset Strip or whatever. And, you know, not everybody has that 
luxury. So we're we're trying, struggling along and trying to. But yeah, um, have, but having said that, comedy should make you fucking laugh. <laughs> how, how, how do you navigate? It? You know, I've heard I can't remember who said this to me, but essentially they they were in a meeting with executives that and they had a show and they're like, it's a bit too funny for us. We it's a little bit too funny. Um, and they were looking for comedy. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, it's just like it's too much trying to go for laughs. How do you navigate as comedy makers? How do you navigate that as people trying to make shows that can exist now but still adhere to what you want comedy to be? I think something that that I've been learning um, when I was first starting out, I thought there was a certain point at which people were the gatekeepers, or they had the golden key to success, or they knew everything. And I saw that first as agents, and then when I got agents, I was like, well, executives must know. And I think what this is showing is no no one really knows anything. Everyone, so when they say, oh, we're not looking for funny comedies right now, that's not a thought, that's a reaction. That's a reaction to something in an algorithm that we don't know about, or that's a reaction to a show they just put up that was funny, and that show didn't happen to get views, so now they're reacting. So executives are, are primarily just scared and reactive. And so the idea of like, what's the key, who wants what, I don't think anybody knows until you put something out in the world and see how it goes. And then if you have no marketing money, then that greatly affects it or you don't want to put money into marketing. But I, I don't know, just this idea of um, someone understanding what success is is very, I don't, I don't think it actually exists. And, and I think that it goes... There are all these conspiracy theories about, you know, Hollywood and who runs Hollywood and the Hollywood agenda. Everyone's just scared. No one knows anything. There's no agenda. It's, they can't agree with each other. Everyone's just going, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? We lost a lot of money. Ah, what's the internet? Ah, like, there's no, <laughs> everyone's just like, huh? <laughs> Is... Considering that there, there's there's spectrums of shows that are, you know, will be a lot of hard jokes to these shows that hypothetically have none, but, like, I think what it's allowed for is an expanding palette of what you can do with a show like Reboot, right? It's like you you can do more, you have a little bit more space to do that. I think, and I think Crazy Ex-Girlfriend did that. I think even Bob, you, even in your 21 minutes, you'll find times in Bob Hartop, Abishola to have moments that might not have been in a multicam a few years ago. Um, how do you think of it? What You know, how do you approach those moments where a sitcom writer of the past might be like, no one said anything funny for two minutes, right? It's like, though you would like their your shows to be funny at some point in the 30 minutes, you're now allowing, like, seemingly, a few minutes here and there where there's a little bit more depth. Yeah, I think that the big mistake for some shows have made through the years is that, you know, it you get scared if there's not a laugh for time. You know, but even, I remember on... Frasier comes to mind. There were, you know, these really powerful scenes. And when an audience is used to a certain rhythm of jokes and then you deprive them of that rhythm for a bit and then you really hit them with something that's surprisingly hard, um, when you do finally get to hopefully a great joke at the end of it, it lands hard. And that's a wonderful thing to, to play with the rhythms. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, like with, with Reboot, for example, it was a show that I just said, I'm going to write exactly what I want to do. And I'm not going to think about anything other than, I think what was in my mind were like other comedy writers, what other comedy writers would think of the show. That was really my only audience. And I, like, I, I had references that nobody outside 
of, of comedy rooms would know in a million years. But I just said, this is, I'm going to just be true to it, and, and hopefully people are going to catch up. And, but it, I couldn't have done that on network yeah. television back when I was doing network television. It was about, no, we got to, what, what's that, you know, farmer in Iowa got to think about this joke. And, and, and instead, you, now you say, well, you know, we can't, pos- there are 5,000 shows on. We, if we can get just one little percentage of that, then we'll be okay. And um, sometimes the more specific, the better. Be, oh, it's so specific. That thing of like, well, I have this very nerdy hobby or whatever, and I'm, my character can't have that because I'm the only. Well, no, if you have that nerdy obsession, then chances are there are a bunch of other people who think the same way. And, and so you, you can take bigger swings with specificity these days. And that's a, it is a wonderful thing about what's happening now. With, with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, what was the tone you were hoping to land? Because it's, you know, you have things that are, you had really dramatic things that happened, really emotional things that happened, and also you had full-on sketch comedy, right? Like, in the middle of a, a show. How did you think of the tone? It was a kind of a gut thing, because the show was totally in, um, I, I think the show was totally consistent with itself, but there were a lot of, I mean, we, we had basically sketches that ended many episodes. We'd almost do like a, a, a 10, 20 second like button of a sketch. Um, and then of course you had the songs, which were very, very, very uh, as, you know, aspirationally, I hope, but uh, very hard comedy. So um, it, it, it was something that, I think tone is the hardest thing to nail because it's something that you can only learn by doing. And, there, and I think it's kind of hard to art- articulate yeah. what what tone is um and i think part of tone is is what is the show what's the show's point of view about itself does the show think these characters are despicable or does the show have empathy for the characters those are two actually totally different tones does the show think it takes place in this world or does it take place in a kind of alternate heightened universe that that also informs tone so tone is one of these things that it's it's really i think hard to codify and teach Unless some a teacher here has some sort of uh, <laughs> math for tone, I would love to see that because that would be helpful for myself. Yeah. And Gene, how do you do it with uh, on a multicam, which tends to be you know you there are certain expectations of the rhythm of it. How how do you approach it to have moments that are not not necessarily fit into that? It's kind of weird because our show is a multicam, but we if you watch it, there are elements of it that very single cam esque. Yeah. For instance, we did a whole episode where some of our characters went back to Nigeria and we built a whole Nigerian Lagos airport at Warner Brothers Burbank. And my mother, who is Nigerian, thought we'd gone to Nigeria. <laughs> like, we went to a market. She's like, I, I, that's Bella Good Market. I know that. Mom. I'm like, Mom, that was Burbank. Um, <laughs> so, but when we write the stories, we, we're not trying to go for the joke. We want it to be funny. But when, I, when, I, when I'm writing it, I'll tend to write a com- real conversation and try and actually go, this is how people spoke, speak and this is how this conversation would go. And these guys are feeling this way and I want... And then I go back after... I, sometimes, as I think like a comedian, so I'm always... I can punch something things up very easily. So I will immediately put a joke in. But sometimes if the jokes aren't there, I will just write it as a real conversation and just follow the feelings and follow the emotions... And then I'll go back afterwards and go through it and go, all right, I can punch this. I can make a joke here. I can put a joke here. But I 
I've always, you know, when I first started writing on the show, because obviously this is, it's all, you know, I'm saying the last few years I've been doing this, uh, I was always like, we need a joke, because I'm a stand-up comic, so I'm like, there's, there's been 30 seconds, there's been no joke, there needs to be a joke. Uh, and then I had to calm that down and go, no, let me just follow the story, follow the emotions, and then put the humour in afterwards. And that's, I've learned to slow down and just tell the story and then put the jokes in afterwards. So that, that is something that I learned along the way. Yeah. And it still comes out hilarious. <laughs> yeah. um, I'll have a last question, which is, you know, I feel like this is, there's been some, uh, let's say, pessimism in this, uh, espoused in this panel, but I, I want to end some, though there's a nice post, but I, I want to end, what, did, what makes you hopeful for the future of scripted comedy? All of you, if anything. I, I, here's what I'll say. Everything, everything's changing. So, I, I hopefuls kind of. I, I people are always going to want comedies to watch, and if there were no new comedies being made for the next couple years, <laughs> hopefully it won't be that. But at a certain point, people are going to run out of old shit to watch, and they're going to want new shit. So there will always be an appetite for scripted comedy. I, I do believe that. I do think that. I don't think reality TV can fully replace scripted comedy. I don't think it can. A lot of people with a looming writer's strike want want that to be the case, but it can't. So that's, and that's less as a creator point of view and more as a viewer. I am a huge fan of television. I grew up, my mom would tape on a VHS every sitcom uh, across all the networks and we'd watch them all at the end of the week. Like that's what I grew up doing with my parents. I was allowed to stay up late when I was eight years old to watch Conan. Like I'm a huge fan of television. It's a part of who I am. Uh, it is a part of who my daughter is. <laughs> I'm trying to put it in her head, damn it. Um, and, and I just, I have to believe that there will always be a want for scripted comedy. Uh, I'm I'm very hopeful um, as someone uh, as a black immigrant lesbian woman coming into this industry and finally be able to tell my stories in an authentic way. It feels fantastic and uh, and I love seeing every time there's a new show on with and I see gay people and I want to see non-white people with white people, old people. You know, I I love that. So I'm hoping I'm hopeful that there'll be more is we're opening the doors for more different stories to be told. Because we've, you know, the assumption has always been an audience only wants this, this thing and we can't, we can't diverge from this thing because this is what everybody... And now we've opened the doors and go, actually, our, you know, we've got a show with majority of the cast of black African immigrants on a white channel and it gets great numbers because people have fallen in love with the people. And it's about the people and the writing and the emotions and you realise that we're all humans, we all do the same, same things the same way, just, just slightly different flavours. So I'm hoping that that opens doors to more diverse stories and we can get more different people into this industry and it will make comedy so much better if you can turn on a network and, and watch different stories with different people and different faces and different ages and different abilities. So that's what I'm hopeful for. That's great. I think talent finds a way. And right now we live in an, a time where you can not only, you know, not only do you have a production studio in your pocket, you also have a distribution uh, method in your pocket. And uh, my, my, I have a daughter who, um, I have two daughters who are both breaking in in various forms in this business and they'll take zero help from me. Mm -hmm. But um, 
truly. They don't want to be on the vulture Nepo baby list. Yeah, they will not. It's they, terrorizing, it's, it's, terrorizing Hollywood. It's their... This piece of shit has a dad who was a DP one time. Let's fucking drag her. It, it's, it's her work. I like the sound of that. I really do like the sound. <laughs> I'm just giving you shit. It's their worst nightmare. So, uh, but my daughter, uh, she and some friends who were, you know, one wants to be a director, and da, 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 they made a movie for a few thousand dollars. They made a, you know, a short film um, that I watched, and, and uh, you know, there's no way that anybody could w- look at that thing and not think that that was a, an expensive mm-hmm. movie. So, um you can do it. Like if you have a great idea and you can, you know, and you can, you can't get through tr- in, through traditional means. You can shoot it, yeah, and you can make it happen. It's th- it's there. That's what's new, at least newish, and exciting. That I think that ultimately, if somebody is truly driven and truly talented, they can find a way to break through. I I believe. I had a friend who made a stand up special. He went to the Apple Store. Bought seven iPhones, shot his special, and then took them back the next day. <laughs> Where there's a wall, there's a way. That's it for another episode of A Good One. You can stream Reboot on Hulu, you can stream Modern Family on Hulu and Peacock, you can stream Crazy Ex-Girlfriend on Netflix, and you can watch Bob Hart's Abishola on CBS or on HBO Max. Follow Steve on social media at Steve Levitan, Gina at Gina Yashere, and Rachel Bloom on Instagram at Rachel Dustin. Good ones produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Camila Stavelskar. God, Mashrika Shinji, our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good ones production of Vulture and the Fox Media Podcast Network. We're here every other Tuesday. Have a good one. Welcome to Good One. Show about talking them jokes. Mm, son. Hey, 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 Good One. It's a good one. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.